This is an audio presentation of God First Church, Cheltenham, England. A community of Jesus followers, worshipping God first, proclaiming God first, and together living God first lives. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk. Uh, If you don't know me, I live in Reading. Uh, We planted a church there in 2001 and we're right in the throes of trying to buy a building. Uh, Actually, we've exchanged contracts on the building right now, uh, subject to change of use. So it's it's a £4 million purchase. Uh, We've given them £400,000 deposit and it's a £2 million refit. And so the numbers in one sense, every so often I don't sleep as well at night, thinking, golly, are we crazy? And we're now talking to the council in terms of getting change of use. It's in an area of Reading that has been sown for key employment. And uh, so initial conversations with the council, they said no, because we don't want to lose employment in that area. And we said, okay, thank you for that. And we've now applied and given them all the reasons why We think it's neutral on employment, but actually the community benefit far outweighs any negligible loss of employment. So that's where we're at. Uh, We're talking to councillors now. It's an exciting stage of church life. If we get through on this, uh, maybe by September, we purchase the building and we're in another phase. That's very exciting. Uh, But also about Liz and I. Liz and I, we have been married for 22 years. Our son is... At university, he's 20. Our 17-year-old daughter, just about to turn 18, she's just doing her A-levels, so she's hoping to leave in September. And our youngest, Zoe, uh, she's 14, she's discovered basketball. And uh, she is a real delight. For the last few years, uh, way our house works, just outside it is a green, lots of houses front onto that. We've been hosting uh, at Christmas carols. Uh, I put a fire up and we sing carols, I do a short address, we gather all the neighbours for that. Yesterday we moved a date and in the summer, so it's every six months we do a kind of garden party, tea party. We had a royal kind of wedding tea party yesterday, it was brilliant. Uh, we started at three o'clock, uh, myself and my family, half eleven were glued to the TV with that kind of family, set up for the street party afternoon, it was brilliant. I had three just significant conversations, because we've done it a number of years now. At the winter one, everyone has their mulled wine, sings their carols and goes. In the summer, we can all sit out because it's better. Uh, So yesterday I spoke to Ibrahim, he's just moved in uh, for 10 months ago. He's a Muslim, as you might guess from his name. He's on Ramadan, Uh, so I'm talking to him and we're kind of, uh, the odds brought sweets and the evens brought savoury, so we're all eating uh, and he's just working the crowd really well. So that's Ibrahim. I asked him, can he invite me to the mosque? Uh, he's obviously very devout. He's on uh, Ramadan. He then told me that just a few doors down, there's another guy who's senior in the mosque, and he does the gardens. So I'm still learning how the Muslim community works. So hopefully Ibrahim is going to invite me along to there. My immediate neighbour, uh, Alistair, his brother died of cancer aged 54. I'm 50, so you kind of suddenly think, wow. 
and he's a few months into that grieving and it seems that a lot of people have moved on and don't want to talk about that anymore. And I'm talking uh, to Alistair yesterday, there's tears welling up in his eyes and just encouraging him to grieve. And uh, you don't need to move on, it takes time. You know, really kind of feeling the pain of that. He didn't want to be part of the street party. He's in that phase. And so I was able to talk to him, said to him again, listen, I'm a, you know I'm a pastor of a church. If you need to talk to anyone, I'm here. And you could just, still processing all of that pain. I then found another guy. Uh, he's an, oh, actually, he's a Christian, didn't know that. His wife died two months ago. And uh, they'd been married 56 years. And he's kind of at this street party and he's welling up. I was praying with him in the road. Just, you know, put my arm around him and I said, listen, uh, can I just pray with you here and now? And just prayed for him as he grieves. Now he's got confidence, he's grieving well with hope. Uh, so it's just a great afternoon. So half past seven last night, I'm sitting in the road with my neighbours drinking beer. Just thinking, God, you are so good. So he is at work. And so as a church, that's what we're doing. As a family uh, we love that. But this morning, I want to talk about followers who actually follow Jesus. Followers of Jesus who actually, you know, really, authentically follow Jesus. And I'm guessing when I say that, you might think, well, I know all about that. I know what it means to be a follower of Jesus. I'm hoping there's one or two people in the room who aren't yet following Jesus to make sure you're a healthy church. There's got to be some of you amongst us. Glad you're here. But for most of us, being a follower of Jesus who actually follows Jesus, you, maybe that's gotten a little bit hazy in the business of the royal wedding, in the business of summer barbecues, in the business of studies. Actually, maybe that's gotten a little bit of hazy. Maybe being a follower of Jesus is no longer shaping your life. It used to shape your life. It used to dominate your life. But somehow, because of how life is, it's no longer the causal effect of everything that you do. And so that's what I want us to think about this meaning. What did Jesus mean when he said, follow me? When he caught people by the eye, you know, across a marketplace or a gathering or just walking along, and he looked in the eyes and he said, follow me, what did Jesus mean? Let me pray. Holy Spirit, I thank you that you've been amongst us in our singing already. Thank you that you're amongst our, the littlies in the church, as they're called, the beloved children. Holy Spirit, I thank you that you are always with us. But I pray that over this next 25 minutes that you would be tangibly amongst us, helping me to finish sentences, to faithfully deliver what I feel you have given me to bring to this beloved church. But more than that, that you would manifestly encounter tangibly, viscerally, uh, encounter people this morning, that they would know you upon them to help all of us follow Jesus as we want to do. I pray this in the mighty name of the one we want to follow. Amen. Who here is on Twitter? Oh, come on, there must be more than that. Just a few of you. Okay, a few of you on Twitter. Well, for those of you who aren't on Twitter, or those of you who don't want to admit to being on Twitter, and for those of you who might be on Twitter even now, <laughs> unbelievable. <laughs> on Twitter, to follow someone, what do you do? You just click a button. And updates from their life automatically come to your phone, or if you're old school, 
your laptop. Basically, you don't have to know anyone personally. You don't need to have a relationship with them. Uh, but actually, you can still get to find out what's going on in their life. You don't even have to ask permission to be their friend or to follow them. You just click and you follow them. So you can now sit in your trendy Cheltenham cafe, I'm sure there's one or two of those, uh, in leafy Cheltenham, and you can follow someone, along with many other people following them, at no cost to you whatsoever. And the great thing is, if you get bored of following that person, uh, you can either stop reading their updates, or if you disagree with them, or you're just overwhelmed by the number of things that you are following, the number of input feeds into your life, if you get bored of them, what can you do? You can just unfollow them, and they don't even know. It's brilliant in that regard. Now, I just want to say this. When Jesus said, follow me, he didn't mean, like, follow me on Twitter. I just want to be really clear. When Jesus talked about following, it wasn't just click on something and I'll give you updates from my life and be one of many updates. And do you know what? If you get a bit bored, you can stop following me and I don't know. That's not what Jesus was talking about. And I want to make sure when I talk about this morning about following Jesus, I did say I've got this message that's going to pour out of me, didn't I? Some of you are thinking, man, Allah, you've checked out already. Don't check out. Hang in there with me. Follow me this morning for the next 25 minutes. When Jesus said, follow me, it's not like following someone on Twitter. Just so we're clear that our terms of reference are the same. At the beginning of Jesus' public ministry, I guess he was about 30 years old, he called out to people, he looked them in the eye and he said, Andy, follow me. And incredibly, those people, many of them, not all of them, many of them, dropped everything that they were doing and followed Jesus. Simon and Andrew, they were fishermen. They left their nets, the Bible says, and then they followed him. James and John, immediately, they were fishermen as well, they left their boat and their father and followed him. So these guys, uh, James and John, they were obviously with their father, presumably with a catch, or at least their nets. They left everything. They would have brought shame to their father. Dad, you figure that all out. We're going to leave you with that because we are going to follow Jesus. Matthew was a tax collector. So he was a rebel. He would have been thought of as a traitor because he was raising taxes, revenue from his own people to give to the occupiers, the Romans, Jesus saw him sitting in his tax booth and he said to Matthew, also known as Levi, Matthew, follow me. And what did Matthew do? Well, the Bible says that Matthew left his booth, his means of making money, and he went and followed Jesus and hosted a party at his own house. Andrew and Peter, James, John and Matthew and many others, when you read the Gospel stories, all heard something compelling. They all heard something just irresistible when Jesus said to them, follow me. And, and Jesus was calling them to uh, an immediate, to an, to an active, to a lifelong following of himself. It, it wasn't like a passive following. 
He called them to so much more than mouse-click following of Jesus. And my hope today is to stir our faith, to remind all of us again of the startling cost of following Jesus and the compelling joy of following Jesus. So that God first would be known as followers of Jesus who actually follow Jesus. Because you know and I know that Cheltenham doesn't need any more mouse-click followers of Jesus. Cheltenham doesn't need that. Your neighbours, your colleagues, your fellow students, they don't need mouse-click followers of Jesus. What your town needs are those who are filled with gospel joy who are filled with just the joy of following Jesus. And those people who are full of joy and willing to count the cost to go follow Jesus all their life. So we're going to start now by just looking at and reminding ourselves of both the cost and the joy of following Jesus. So let's start, first of all, let's look at the joy of following Jesus. The joy of following Jesus... Imagine dog walking in a field. Howard Kellett, you've just turned up to the church. He's invited you to go to a dog walk with him, maybe something like that. And you're up near Birdlip and you stumble upon a Roman treasure that is more valuable than anything else you could ever work for in your entire life. So if you worked your entire life, the amount you'd earn, and this treasure that you found is worth more than that, or ever going to find as a detectorist. It's more valuable than all you have now, or all you're ever likely to have in this life. And you look around, and Howard is tied up with his dog, who's run off somewhere. Howard hasn't noticed the treasure's there. And you realise that no one else has noticed that treasure. And so what you then do is that you kind of cover it up surreptitiously so that no one notices And then you walk away, all the while pretending that you haven't noticed the treasure. But once you get home, you immediately begin to sell everything that you have. You're on eBay, you're on Gumtree, you are selling everything that you own because you want to raise enough money to buy that field that's got the treasure in. And your friends think you're crazy. They ask you, you know, what are you up to? And you say, well, do you know what? I'm just going to buy a field near Birdlip. And you're going to buy a field near Birdlip? Why are you doing that? And when they ask you that, all you can do is answer with this kind of goofy smile. Because you don't want to say anything. You've got this huge smile. And they look at you and say, you are bonkers. Because they have no idea. And all you can do, you just keep smiling to yourself. Because you know you have found something Worth losing everything for. You, you, you found it. So, yeah, I'm happy to lose, sell everything. I'm going to lose everything because I'm going to buy a field and in that field is a treasure. Well, this is how Jesus described the joy of following him. Matthew 13, 44 says this. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and then covered up. And then in his joy, not his sense of duty, but what's compelling him is gospel joy. 
he goes and sells all that he has so he can buy a field. You see, the kingdom of heaven is to be filled with women and men who know great joy. Why is that? Because we have found someone, not something, we have found someone who is worth leaving everything for. That's what the kingdom of God is like, women and men. We, we know, we've, we've found someone. And he is so valuable to us that, the, that being with him releases us. We just say, look, we want to know great joy and we're happy to give up everything to know him. You see, when we really know who Jesus is, then being a follower of Jesus, who actually follows Jesus, it just doesn't feel like a sacrifice as much as it does as just a pure response of joy of having found him. So when you have to let go of pursuits and possessions and pleasures or a sense of safety and security or lifestyle choices that you highly value, when you have to yield those things, it doesn't really feel sacrificial as much as a joyful response to knowing Christ. Now, given the quiet in the room, I wonder whether I understand that not everyone here who follows Jesus feels joyful right now. I get that. Life happens. But I do want to say this this morning. We're to raise our expectations to Jesus' teachings. To rediscover that joy and excitement of following Jesus. We're not to lower our our expectations to our own experience. No, we're here this morning because we can say, Jesus, you said that knowing you and following you should fill us with great joy. And despite what I've experienced, I'm believing this morning, Jesus, you're going to help me to raise my expectations to your teaching. The good news is, joy is a gift of the Holy Spirit. We're not going to get to a point later on in this meeting where we're going to ask you to just to generate more joy for following Jesus, as if you kind of somehow, if you squeeze really hard, there's some more joy in you that you can get out for Jesus. No, joy is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. And he clothes himself with us. And he bears the fruit of joy in your life. He does that in you, you make yourself available to him, he comes upon you. And he gives you a joy that can propel you through whatever you are facing. That God first, they would be known as women and men who rediscover the joy and the excitement in following Jesus. So that's where we're going to get to at the end of this time. So we've talked about gospel joy and how that propels us in our following of Jesus But Jesus also talked about the cost of following him. And we're going to look at uh, some of his teachings in Luke 14. And there's three teachings I want to look at, kind of parables, short, punchy teachings that Jesus told about the importance of counting the cost of following Jesus. There is a cost to being a disciple, a follower who actually follows. So together we're going to look at three parables in Luke 14, 28 to 35, Because Jesus wants his followers to know what they've let themselves in for. He's really upfront about that. 
This is what it means to follow Jesus. He was unashamedly telling people, count the cost. He called them to follow him and consider the cost. Luke 14, 28 to 30 says this. Don't begin until you count the cost. This is Jesus. Don't begin following him until you count the cost. For who would begin construction of a watchtower without first calculating the cost to see if there is enough money to finish it? Otherwise, you might complete only the foundation before running out of money and then everyone would laugh at you. They would mock you. They would say, there's the person who started that building and couldn't afford to finish it. Now the tower in this story is most likely a watchtower for a vineyard. Most likely. And what Jesus is saying is the landowner who wants to build a watchtower for his vineyard, he needs to sit down and cost out the enterprise of building this watchtower in order that he understood the cost so that he finished the build and therefore avoided ridicule and mockery by those people around him. What Jesus is saying is, hey, we know this is true. If someone builds a watchtower, we know that the builder has got to sit down, they've got to count the cost, and they need to figure out, are they willing to fully commit all they have to build this tower? Because only then can they expect success. Well, the lesson from Jesus is plain. He does not want followers to rush into discipleship without considering the cost involved. Because following Jesus is a public endeavour. It's not something you do privately that no one else knows about. And you've got to be clear about the cost. Anyone who comes to him must count the cost and be fully committed to finish the build. What that means for God first is many of you in this room, maybe most of you in this room, you are building on the foundation of Jesus in your life. And I've been in ministry, uh, pastoral ministry now for nearly 20 years. And I've seen it. You see people, they start on the foundation of Jesus. And the early years of their life, they're putting all these stones down and they're putting courses down. You think, man, that's incredible. They are building their tower for Jesus. And people are watching them build their tower. But over time, you realise that they're putting less and less stones, some people at least, they're putting less and less stones up and their, their tower doesn't seem to be rising because actually it's costly to follow Jesus. He's to keep putting stones up. There's a huge cost and life happens. Disappointment happens. Cynicism happens. Families arrive. Life gets busy. Sickness comes in. And then people stop building on their tower. And their pastors, people like me, they look, they look, man, they've not put any courses on their tower for weeks, maybe months for some of you. Maybe for years you haven't put a course because the cost is too much for you. And then, of course, your friends watch you and they notice you've stopped building on your tower because of the cost. Actually, other things have come along and more appealing, more attractive. I don't want to keep building the costly tower here. And they say, hey, that person, 
They started building their tower for Jesus. But actually, when things got hard over time, you know, they've stopped building. Building on the foundation of Jesus isn't worth it. It's too costly. And then God is mocked by your life. Now, sisters, brothers, I know Tom and Andy, Steve and Howard. I know their hearts for you. They don't want any unfinished towers in God first. They, they don't want any towers. You know, you started so well. You are building wonderfully for Jesus. You students who are just about to scatter. It's all ahead of you. You've, I'm guessing they're saying, you've built well on the foundation of Jesus. You've got lots of stones in place. Keep building. Now, I know these guys are committed to help people restart building their towers. Some of you looking around the room, you've, you've been building your tower for decades and we commend you. We need you to keep building. For those in our, our 40s and 50s, now I'm thinking about pensions and uh, what's going to happen when uh, I retire. I could so easily be distracted and not be a radical for Jesus. You, all churches need guys in their 60s, 70s and 80s being radicals for Jesus, which is why I love Ben Davis when he comes through. He's still building his tower for Jesus after decades of cost. And his life is for the glory of God. And yet there can be those amongst us whose towers, we, are they going to finish their tower? Jesus is saying, you've got to realise, follow me, you've got to count the cost. Because I don't want any unfinished towers that bring mockery to me and building on my foundation. There's a huge cost. The second teaching of Jesus we're going to move on is just talk about the cost of following and think about the stronger king. Jesus told a parable about one king being invaded by a stronger king. And the weaker king has got to do something. Passivity by the weaker king is not an option. Luke 14, 31 to 33 says this. Or what king would go to war against another king without first sitting down with his counsellors to discuss whether his army of 10,000 could defeat the 20,000 soldiers marching against him? And if he can't, he's going to send a delegation to discuss terms of peace while the enemy is still far away. So you cannot be my disciple without giving up everything you own. What Jesus is saying is that even in the heat of indignation and national pride, a wise king needs to weigh up the consequences of battling a king that's twice his strength. That the weaker king must got to sit down and reckon, can he afford to ignore the demands of the stronger opposing king and if he is unable to win he's got to ask the stronger king for terms of peace now just uh, I know you're kind of catching up with that story let me simplify it in the same way Jesus is saying this Jesus is the far stronger king and we are the weaker king and if we try to oppose Jesus because we think we've got 10,000 good foot soldiers with us, if we think we can beat Jesus with our 10,000, he's got more than 20,000 on his side. If we think we can oppose King Jesus, the stronger king, Jesus wants us to be clear, we will not win. 
and we will lose everything. Therefore, we should wisely assume we should sue for peace and realise that when we sue for peace, when we say, hey, you're an opposing king, I'm a weaker king, actually, I'm not going to be able to beat you, I'm going to sue you for peace. What does it mean for us to have peace? He then, effectively, in those times, the weaker king must therefore assume that his kingdom, all of his treasure, all that he governs, is now the stronger king's as tribute. So the weaker king now comes realising, you are stronger than me, therefore I want peace with you. All that I have is now yours as tribute. What I have, what I govern, what I steward, I now hand over to you as tribute. Most likely, when we do that with Jesus, when we say, I want peace with you, we will get to steward our stuff, but it is not our stuff. We steward our stuff, it is tribute to the stronger king, it is not ours. Most likely we get to steward it, but it is now his as tribute. He is the stronger king. And Jesus said, if you're going to follow me, you need to know I am the stronger king who has now got all that you own, all of your time, all of your treasure, and he's a good, wise, loving king, by the way, albeit much stronger than us. He's a good king. But all that we have, and, and we forget that. Over weeks, months, decades, those who are once radicals for Jesus are now consumed in other things, thinking their stuff is theirs. When it's tribute for the king, he can make claim on anything you have. He can. But he is wise, he's good, and he is loving. Most likely you will steward his stuff whilst you have breath in your bodies. But Jesus is saying, you need to count that cost and be reminded of that cost. I realised when I was a student, became a Christian, I was 22 at university, it was easy to steward a grant because it was relatively small amounts of money. Once I was the only breadwinner for our family, once I quit my job and realised, man, I'm, I'm a church planter, believe it, it's got money, was much harder, the stakes. As you get older in life, the stakes get higher. As you get older in life, often you get more toys, more stuff, more nest eggs. Certainly now the inheritances are starting to come down. How do you steward Jesus' stuff? It's his. It is not yours. We just need to remind ourselves, Jesus, if you're one of followers of Jesus who actually follow Jesus and know that it's his stuff, not ours. First thing I want to say about the cost of following Jesus, the unfinished towers, the stronger king, and then staying salty. Salt is good. In Jesus' time, it would be used for flavouring and as a preservative. Salt crystals can't actually lose their taste, but its effectiveness can be radically diluted by mixing it with other impurities, such that it is rendered unsalty. And so if you sold salt, you're trying to mix a bit of dust in, a bit of sand, so you could get more for your money, but if you put too much in, it'd be useless. And then you just about to throw it away. Jesus told a parable about the cost of following. He said this, Luke 14, 34 to 35, salt is good for seasoning, but if it loses its flavour, how do you make it salty again? Flavourless salt is good neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. It is thrown away. Anyone with ears to hear should listen and understand. Salt that has been mixed with impurities is useless. 
It's not even fit to condition the soil will be helpful in the manure pile. And the message is clear. Christ followers who allow themselves to be diluted, to be mixed with impurities, they lose their saltiness and they are useless to everyone. A cost of following Jesus is to maintain our saltiness over months, over years, over decades. Jesus warned against letting ourselves to be distracted or diluted by the wrong things. And this is much harder than we ever think, staying salty for Jesus over the long haul. In Matthew 6, he talked about some of the ways of staying salty, of being refined, and you get this for free because we don't have a lot of time on this, staying salty through prayer, through fasting, and through giving. For the long haul, these kind of old school Christian disciplines of prayer, fasting, and giving. Prayer, fasting, and giving aren't means of making you acceptable to God. They don't make you salty, but they are powerful ways of removing impurities in your life. We're acceptable to God through faith in Christ, not through pray, fasting, and giving. But there's something about doing those hidden disciplines that helps us stay salty by removing impurities. Prayer reminds you that you're a creature, that we are created, and we have a creator. And this creator has said about us, I am with you. And he said of himself, I am who I am. I can do what I like. I'm here on my own terms and I have set my love upon you. Prayer reminds us that we are dependent on him and he is a willing God. I want to say this morning, we have a willing God and we have a God who is able. He is willing and able. And he calls us to come to him. There's something about prayer that kind of helps remind us that we're creatures. Prayer reminds us that he is a good God. Fasting humbles us. You literally empty yourself and you end up trusting in the true bread of life to sustain you. That's how it goes. I'm going to empty myself of things that give me comfort. Food is a comfort for me. Food energises me. Uh, But actually, you empty yourself. It's a God, I'm going to humble myself. Jesus, the Bible says you are the true bread from heaven. That spiritual life, you sustain all things. So I'm going to empty myself now and come to you. I'm going to depend on you alone to strengthen me and to comfort me. Giving reveals where your treasure is and therefore where your heart is. It's like that, isn't it? That's what giving does. It's secret, no one knows. I'm guessing in Cheltenham we don't tell everyone how much you earn and how much you give. So it's one of these secret things that really says, where is your treasure? If we looked at your bank account and where you put your money, that would probably reveal where your treasure is and where your heart is going. Giving reveals what kind of father in heaven you believe God to be. It it just does it. How you see giving, how you give, reveals how you see God as Father. You you just need to think that through. It says lots about how you view God. Do you see him as your provider? Do you feel he's generous? Do you feel able to meet your needs? 
trustworthy, dependable. Giving reveals all of that, not just about the amount. In Reading, you know, we're trying to buy a six million pound building. And so uh, in December, I said to all the elders, we had an elders meeting, say, guys, we need to lead the church into double giving. I was from Naomi's dad, Ben, from his church. Uh, he taught me about double tithing. We're now double giving. I said to the elders just before Christmas, we had to raise like half a million pounds in order to exchange. He said, we need to lead the charge, double giving just before Christmas. Went all around the room. I'm a big budgeter. Another guy, he doesn't budget. He said, he's all in. And so now as an eldership, we're all double giving, telling the church, listen, we've got to raise this money. Someone there, one of the other elders came up with the idea, well, if we're double giving, why do we get into double praying? And so now we've kind of got two prayer meetings going on in the week that we're committed to. And we're also fasting on Mondays. And so every Monday, uh, we stop during school holidays so we can get to eat next Monday. Hooray! <laughs> so on Mondays, we're all fasting and praying. We're calling the church, let's fast and pray. The saltiness of the last six months amongst us as elders. You know, we have elders meetings. We say, how's our finances going, guys? That was a deal. Look, we're all going to double give, but we're going to cover each other. You know, is there anyone under pressure? For some people, just how our team works, some have got more money than less. One guy, he's, he's already underwater once he gives double gifts. So he's got a, bought a little book that each time we got a story of God's provision, he'd write it down. And his book is filling up. And so our saltiness amongst us for the prayer meetings and, and Mondays now, our, our WhatsApp group talking about fasting today, let's go. And you kind of sense there's a saltiness in the church as we face this kind of challenge of change of use, trying to buy this building and leading through the integrity, the saltiness. I know we're learning lessons now that are going to propel us the coming years, God willing, decades. The saltiness of following Jesus. Prayer, fasting and giving refines your salty joy. That it refines your salty joy. There's no shortcuts. There's no shortcuts. Today I wanted to remind you of the things that you already know. I've driven, we've driven all the way from Reading to tell you stuff you already know. But my concern is that some of these things have gotten hazy in your mind. For some of you, these things are no longer shaping your life as they once did. I wanted us to think about what did Jesus mean when he said, follow me? What did Andrew, Peter, James, John, Matthew? They all found something compelling and irresistible in his invitation to follow me. And for most of us, we felt that too. Do you remember that? I remember being on a beach in Portsmouth in 1989 when I responded to the call of Jesus. I can still feel those emotions and I still feel I'm living in those emotions by the grace of God, not because I'm good, because the Spirit of God is on me now. Jesus called them to an active, lifelong following and he calls us to active, lifelong following. Cheltenham doesn't need any more mouse-click followers of Jesus. He is someone worth losing everything for. To let go of your possessions, your pleasures, your sense of safety and security, the lifestyle choices, to let go of those and all of that big because you're propelled by the joy of knowing Jesus. And counting the cost is important. Followers must be clear about the price, that there's no unfinished towers in God first, that we don't try to oppose the stronger king. We will not win. We should wisely assume that as followers of Jesus, 
All we have, our kingdom and our treasure, is now his as tribute. And most likely we get to steward his stuff for him. Most likely. A cost of following Jesus is the resolve to maintain our saltiness. Followers of Jesus who don't actually follow Jesus are useless. And I know that the elders of this church don't want any useless Christians here. I know what it is to feel like a useless Christian. But I also know what it is to have a second chance by the grace of God, by the forgiveness, to know the joy. And I want you to know the same. And I want the people of Chelton to know that at God first, they are followers of Jesus who actually follow Jesus with joy. And there's a joy that's propelling them forward that helps them pay extraordinary costs for the gospel. And you know what? For them, they feel the cost, but for them, it's a small thing because they know Jesus. They know that he is going to return one day and he is going to vindicate us and our faith and he'll make decisions about rewards that would be appropriate and just and we're going to have a blast eternally. That's where we're going. That's where we're heading. But we're here today. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk.